1: Hello, I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to our latest episode of Late Boomers. Today we have as our guest Jake Sasseville, author and entrepreneur involved in media, music producing, podcasting, and hospitality. He is the CEO and founder of Imaloa Institute in Costa Rica, which we look forward to hearing all about
2: and I'm Mary Elkins and Jake at 21 was the youngest late-night TV host in the history of ABC. The White House named him one of the most innovative entrepreneurs under 30. Inc. Magazine wrote that Jake has more than enough chutzpah to scale any business and the Huffington Post wrote he's built an impactful career at the intersection of culture and consciousness. Welcome Jake we're delighted to have you here.
3: Ladies, it's so good to be here. We were chatting a little bit before the podcast. I was telling you guys that it feels right at home to be talking with you both. So I I look forward to whatever this conversation brings. Thanks for having me on.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, you have done so many things in your life. So please tell us about your background and how you found yourself on this multifaceted career path.
3: So it's a good question. I think the path, found me to a certain extent. Um, You know, much happened in my early life, which kind of set the pace and set the way for uh, what happened in my late teens, early 20s. You know, my brother died of cancer when I was 17, and he was 13. And while that's almost 20 years ago, so you know, a lot of people are like, well, that's so sad. Well, it was 20 years ago. But what it did, what it did is it Put me on a path well actually i'll tell you what it did what it did was it kind of blew open a hole inside of me one of my agents in hollywood actually said that most brilliant talents have a, a have a goddamn god-sized hole that was blown through them in childhood and they spend the rest of their career trying to fill it and i thought that was so relevant yeah a- and you know there was something about watching my brother die in my parents arms not the actual event that happened But the lack of ability, unfortunately, for my parents to be there for me as a kid, going through that as his brother, that just kind of put me on this path of, you know, trying to fill that void, trying to deal with that. And the way that I did that in my 20s is I thought, well, gee, if I could be successful, maybe that would make everything better. And of course, success after success, failure after failure, you know, because there were high highs and low lows throughout my 20s. I, I started to recognize that I was gonna have to deal with life and not just try to work hard, be successful, work hard, be successful in order to deal with what happened to me as, as a kid and, and seeing this, you know, unfold with my brother. So I think that when people ask Kathy about my multifaceted career, I don't pay homage to it. It's been interesting. I have really enjoyed it. I'm happy to dush about stories and talk about what i've learned and and what it's taught me and all of this but i don't necessarily wear it as a badge of honor because i'm not really trying to hustle like that anymore i'm really trying to learn from you know living life on life's terms these days and sharing that as much as i can with people because that's the that is the biggest thing that's changed my life is learning to live life on life's terms anyways i've kind of unpacked a lot for an introductory question but I, mm-hmm. I you know you kind of you went there so so i did yeah too. Yeah. yeah
2: well Good. talking about your career um can you tell us a little bit about your tv career and your foray into music producing and also i noticed that you studied magic as a kid and i'm wondering yes. if that that helped you in that career
3: well i'll tell you magic helped with sales i really enjoy sales i don't think of it as a dirty nasty word i'm really good at it i train people to sell based on attraction not promotion and my early career in sales i mean i was able to sell ice to eskimos i was insane Uh, i could literally have a 45-minute conversation with somebody and close six-figure deals from a tv show and i think magic really set the set that up learning to be a magician um so early i was like 13 when i sought a mentor i was like i don't want to learn from books i want someone to teach me and i learned early on about the power of mentorship and so i would learn to do these magic and basically all magic is is you look over here well i do something over here and then i the ideal outcome is that something magical happens uh, on the way or as a result that's kind of what sales and business is it's like gotta figure out something over here Well, something happens over here. Let's hope it happens. And boom, the result is a business or an experience or a TV show. Something magical happens on the path to creating something. And so that's kind of what magic did for me early on. It was also an escape. You know, my brother was sick throughout my teenage years. So magic was also an escape. The TV thing, you know, look, I'll be really honest with y'all. I uh, had a local TV show in Maine when I was 15, 16. It was right along the time of magic. Okay. I started a TV show and it, here, here's what it did. I started a TV show because I thought, well, well, that would be fun. And <laughs> then I booked this uh, author who I was reading as part of like my sophomore English class. His name was Mark Matabani, and his book was called Kefir Boy, about a young man's escape from apartheid in South Africa. Ooh. And I thought, well, he'd be a good guest but who who the hell is going to come to maine to be a guest on my little local tv show well i got him i got him to come to maine he spoke at the local college stephen king paid his fees the author stephen king i mean as a kid i was brokering these deals Mm -hmm. just because you know it was interesting to me it was business it was entertainment and what happened is at the end of that interview i interviewed him in person in our little local podunk tv studio And this guy you know had an armani suit on he was you know a refined guy he had just done the oprah show the oprah winifrey show and he came to my little local access tv show and he gave me an answer to one of my questions mary and kathy that was so profound that i started to hysterically cry right as a 16 year old just emotional my brother was obviously going through what he was going through and everybody in the room gasped But the tv news reporters the newspaper people there weren't blogs back then this is 2000 but all these people that were covering this 16 year old doing his tv show with this best-selling author they all talked about this moment and so they didn't talk about the interview they talked about me losing my mind at the end of the interview and so i started to get reinforcement for what it meant to be vulnerable publicly and mm-hmm. so that kind of set me on the path to television now i ended up in late night tv on abc stations after jimmy kimmel doing comedy but even then i learned how to get attention for being vulnerable and mm-hmm. um funny i wasn't even i mean looking back i wasn't that funny i thought it was funny but uh <laughs> I, I wasn't a trained comic but i was like uh i had uh, i had heart and there you know and i was. Doing a late night show within a show, and I was innovating a genre, and I was, I had a staff of 35 people when I was 21. Wow. It was insane. The whole thing was insane. But again, I go back to the core of what that was impressive or not, is it was a 20 year old trying to fill the deep pain from childhood and being unwilling to look at that, you know? And I think a lot of people, when you actually look at that, I'm not sure about your listeners, because your listeners might, they may not be necessarily in their 20s, but I think. Anytime we're unwilling or unable to look at the cause of what actually is our pain, we're gonna do things to try to fill it until we until we know what it is or until we And have, you, you know. also
1: obviously had all the confidence in the world to make these things happen. Sure, you were filling a hole, but you you went after that author and you said, you know, maybe he'll come he will come to me. You just went in with, I'll get this author. So that is confidence that came to you from somewhere else you just I don't had know where that, that came from Kathy
3: I don't know where that came from because my dad was a therapist like a social worker and my mother was a substitute teacher bless them both but they this is not this was very uncommon this was not like I was like in an entertainment family or even in an aspiring entertainment family I just I don't know where that came from. And a lot of people ask me, where did that come from? How do I develop that in my own kids? I can't tell you. I don't know. I mean, yeah, there was something it was something deep within. I think I'm still trying to to figure that out. But thank God I had it, you know, because it pushed me Uh through a lot of the difficult times. It's not been easy, as you can imagine, doing a TV show at 21 in New York City while in college. I dropped out of college when the show launched, actually it wasn't, it wasn't particularly an easy path. It was interesting. It got me a lot of attention, but it wasn't easy, mm-hmm. but I'm also really grateful for the path that I, that, that I've been on, you know, cause without Tell it, us a little
1: have... bit about your book, slightly famous.
3: So that was chronicling how I became the youngest host in late night TV history ah. at 21. So all the way from like 18 to 21. And then how I careened off the off the ledge and lost it all and went a quarter of a million dollars in debt by the time I was 22, um, facing How did you do that? Very, very fabulously. (laughs) Very, very fabulous. Yeah, I mean, look, I had the Midas touch until I didn't, right? And a lot of people have put their faith in a 21-year-old and honestly, I'm 36 now and I would never put my faith. The faith that was put in me by these people that were double and triple my age, I would never have done. I mean... You're trusting someone for your paycheck that that whose frontal cortex is not fully formed <laughs>
1: you know like exactly and
3: just because i was able to do these million dollar deals with png and ford and red bull i was able to until i wasn't and i didn't really have a backup plan nor did i have the life experience nor people around me that could actually like create a net in case you know whatever it is so um yeah, it was a bit It was a bit of a ride. It was a bit of a ride. Uh, and I was able to do it until I wasn't. And then what I basically did, Mary, is I repeated these patterns throughout my 20s. Work hard, become successful, fail, work hard again, become successful, fail again. And I did that until life finally flattened me out when I was 27.
2: Mm-hmm. And
3: I had to really look at what was actually in the closet, the demons that were in the closet. Well, tell us more about your book, slightly famous. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it basically talked about it. It's a loosely based memoir and it talks about how I went from, um, you know, no agent in Hollywood would give me a TV deal to how I pre-sold a million dollars worth of advertising, which was a lot of money back in 06 for a 20 year old. Mm -hmm. So I basically convinced these huge companies, overstock.com, Ford, Red Bull, um, ford gave me a car and a quarter of a million dollars and i didn't even have a tv show on the air at that point i mean uh-huh. bananas I, I, saying the stories now it, it seems it seems crazy but i used that to leverage momentum to get the press to write about how i was the youngest host in late night tv before i was the youngest host in late night tv and then i went and bought airtime after jimmy kimmel in all the major markets and 50 60 million homes and so the press had already written about it. Disney was giving me cease and desists to stop talking like that because you know, I had basically bought my way on the air, but it had been legitimized by the press and with the sponsors that were supporting the show. When I mean, it was insanity. So the book kind of talks about all those stories and uh and then what happened when I kind of went into the abyss and lost it all and sleeping on a beanbag for 13 months and not really sure my next move and then starting again, which Mm -hmm. I started another show after that.
2: Well, Um, talking about that, the abyss, you've experienced a ton of emotional and professional challenges. I mean, sounds like enough to cover two lifetimes. So how did you manage to overcome them and how did they change you?
1: Mm.
3: So I thought I was overcoming them. But I really didn't overcome anything until I went through it. And that's what happened when I was 27. I call it my divine quarter, where literally my house gets washed away in Hurricane Sandy, October 29th, 2012. In November, my show gets canceled on ABC Family. In December, um, my development deal on NBC gets canceled. I have no money. I have nowhere to go. And I end up needing to take a $31 mega bus ticket back to grandma's basement in Lewiston, Maine. And this is when I talk about being flattened at 27. That's, that's what I'm talking about. So I kept going until I could no longer. And until I really had to face the music and the music was, I had to get myself in a 12 step program. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to start being still. My phone stopped ringing. Actually, my phone was disconnected because I had no money. Uh, <laughs> and I had to live in, in a basement in Maine, which was the biggest fear God of Thank God for life. her
1: because, you know, somebody was willing to do that for you. And you weren't out on the street. So Thank had,
3: God. Because I had, had fried all my relationships, base. Kathy. I had yeah. fried all my friendships. Um, and like you know because I was living with my best friend and she was like I can't keep you know we're all in our 20s we're all struggling in our 20s I can't keep putting food in the fridge for you I was like I don't know and I told grandma I said grandma I'm just going to be there for a month and she was just so excited she's like come on up baby and I was there for two years (laughs) I was there for (laughs) two years and she never once complained she provided food a warm place, fairly warm. The basement was actually unfinished, I'll be honest with you. Uh-huh. But that's where I also started my podcast. So I had you know, started and failed at five businesses in that basement. And the sixth one, a podcast, which is why I love podcasts, worked and it worked big like within the first month I had 100,000 downloads Mm -hmm. and within three months I was making 10 grand a month on my podcast and grandma didn't even have internet you guys so I had to go record the damn thing at a Dunkin Donuts parking lot what was it called the Jake Sasseville show oh good
1: right to the point yeah I want to jump right into your work at Imaloa Institute sure and tell our listeners about Imaloa your mission there and why you chose Costa Rica
3: So Imaloa is an intercontinental institute for the education and advancement of human beings. I really have come to believe that our greatest pain in our life can become our purpose if we listen to the whisper. And Imaloa is the culmination of my greatest pain, not feeling like I had a real home my whole life and not feeling at home when I was there. And Imaloa is, I guess, People might consider it a retreat center. We call it an institute because we're all getting an education the same way our guests and participants are. And, you know, the vision is we're building one of these, at least one of these, on every continent on the planet over the next several years. And our 30 year vision is to transform the lives of a billion people, helping them return to the place of home in nature. Because we find that no matter what curriculum we're running, and we have Two years of retreats sold out at Imaloa right now. We're selling into 2024 with amazing teachers. But no matter what program people come to, it's the nature that is returning people back to themselves, that's presenting them with a sense of wholeness. And I never would have thunk it. I mean, I created the place. But I always say I started it in 2018, but that I just kind of put up a canvas and now there are 40 gorgeous people that paint on top of that canvas every week and create what that experience is for these beautiful people that are coming through. So um, it's a beautiful way to channel my energy and my lessons. And certainly in Maloa is the culmination of all of that. Um, it's personal. It's deeply personal. But again, it's not mine anymore. It really is not. And I've had to come through my own reckoning with that. I imagine I don't have kids I don't know if either of you have kids. Do either of you have kids? I have one. I imagine Kathy does. I imagine it's what happens when kids leave to go to college in that there's a level of just detachment that has to happen because it's no longer me in control. I mean, yes, I'm the CEO, but what does that really mean? That's three letters that basically mean that I'm responsible. But it's the team that's creating everything, and they know that, and that's an intention of mine because otherwise I was going to give myself an ulcer if I kept trying to do everything. But
1: it's good you can recognize that. And behave to. that way and say, okay, to. I'm letting you go out to college and be independent.
3: Well, <laughs> listen, we ha- we were the only place to not close or fire a soul during COVID in our, in our region, the only hospitality place. I mean, yeah. th- you want to talk about what it takes to keep something like that afloat with 40 people and all this. It was going to it was probably going to take me to the brink. So I had to switch the way I was doing it. I fundamentally had to switch how I was doing the business and to empower these really talented people. I mean, MLO was better off because of them, not in spite of them, for sure.
1: Uh Fabulous.
2: Yeah, Uh, can you tell us a little about what you did?
3: Wow. So I was not, even though I had the original vision for Imaloa. I was not the CEO. I had two business partners and both stepped down during COVID. Um, One in July of 2020 and the other in October. And the investors were calling me and I was very much a part of it. I was the CMO, right? I was the sales guy. I was the marketer and the visionary behind it. And the investor said you need to step in as CEO. I said, I'm a college dropout. What are you talking about? I did not step in as CEO to this place. And by the way, I didn't know it at the time, but we were just the plane was in free for all. We were going, I mean, it was a it was COVID, right? So it's like in in the tourism business yeah. with borders that were closed. And two of my partners left the business. It's like, "Huh?" So, I just I made a choice. And I said, I actually, you know what it was, Mary? I saw an opportunity. And I guess that obsessive entrepreneurs to be able to see moments like this. It was just a moment. It wasn't like I saw the whole thing clearly laid out. But what I saw is I saw, well, shit, if I can do this, if I can step in and le- turn this thing around, based on what the rest of the world is going through, the whole COVID experience, I said, Imaloa will be better off and be booked forever in the future because the world is now asking some of life's biggest questions people are seeking what better than a retreat center in a gorgeous location so i said okay and plus i'll tell you what really got me to get myself in gear is my team uh you know you meet people and everyone's like their team is the heart and soul and blah 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 but when you meet Costa Ricans, if you've not been here, they're some of the kindest people on the planet. Their national motto, the way they say hello and goodbye, is pura vida, which means pure life. That's how Ooh, they greet I love you. that. And that's how they say goodbye to you. These people are some of the most heart-centered pros that I've met. And I was just like, I'm stuck in a jungle. I can't get on a plane. My two business partners have stepped out of the business. But yet I have these 30 people looking at me every day to come up with something. So... Why don't I just come up with something? And that's been the story of my life, right? I mean, I've always had to fend. I've always had to figure it out. Um, granted, grandma was a was a miracle when she provided me her basement, grandma's basement. But for the most part, like I've had to look out for my... And so I said, well, I'm going to look out for myself and these people, and I'm going to see what we can do. And we turned it around. I sold, you know, I think I sold something like 60 contracts in a year if you can imagine 60 week long contracts, which are $50,000 contracts, by the way, this is nothing to sneeze at. And I did that all with my assistant. Um, And then I started to build a sales team so that I didn't have to do it and stepped in as CEO. And then, you know, the whole team is new. A lot of people no longer matched with the vision and where we're at. We have four original people from the original Imaloa Mm -hmm. from five years ago. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot, there was introducing systems and processes and coaching and, Creating a culture of feedback where we could talk honestly with each other and not put it under the rug, which had been done in the previous leadership a lot. So there was a lot that I had to do, and I've taken steps to do it. And I'm pretty proud of where the team is at now.
2: Well, let's talk about that. I mean, you've, you've talked in your podcasts and some of your writings about results-based businesses and actions-based businesses. Yeah. Tell us what you mean.
3: So this was the single largest, I like that you did your research, Mary Elkins. (laughs) Mary Elkins did her research. She did. (laughs) So, okay. The single largest transformation that I went through was in my 12-step program Uh when it was nearly beaten into me, thanks to my sponsor, that i have gotten myself in this predicament which were many predicaments as you can now surmoise, based on living for results taking action to drive results And she instilled in me this idea that I'm now in the action-taking business, not the results business, which means I take action and I turn the results over to the higher power of my understanding. Uh Now, I struggled with this for two years. I was like, how in the heck am I gonna be taking action, turn the results over, and build a business? Like This does not work. Like Leaders are results-driven. You need to have the metrics. But it was described to me like a dog that puts its face out the window at 60 miles an hour and the dog is out the window at 60 miles an hour for the thrill of being out the window at 60 miles an hour it doesn't matter that bugs are getting in his eyes he is enjoying it for the thrill so for me i take action just for the thrill of taking action not to drive a particular result And i got to tell you i wouldn't necessarily believe it had i not been living it but it started it got me out that basement my podcast just from taking action not really caring much for the results i tracked the results just like i track my money like money comes in money goes out it's one thing i got from my 12-step program but i don't obsess over it whereas everything before in my life i had been Doing intentionally or unintentionally to drive results, and that had led me to deep despair, literally at the bottom in a basement. So I decided to try on a new pair of shoes and see how they see how they went. <laughs> and it turns out she might have been right; like they turned out to be sandals. Yeah.
1: What's that? They turned out to be sandals. Those they shoes.
0: They turned
3: out to be sandals. <laughs> <Is that laughs> yeah, the Washington. Anything?
1: For sure, and you yeah. described your leadership style as being from a spirit of service and a posture of learning. Yeah. So, is this the same as results and actions based, or is it different?
3: I would say it's complementary too. Mm-hmm. You know, we are. I've really instilled, if I've instilled anything in the team, again, it's their, it's basically their business at this point, and I'm just guiding it from behind. But th- it's this idea of spirit of service and a posture of learning that if we approach issues, scaling, opportunities, clients, from a spirit of service. How can I deal with what's right in front of me? How can I serve whatever's happening in front of me, whether it's people, problems, and how can I approach it from a posture of learning? What can I learn from this situation? It creates a whole different dynamic in business that I think is why we're arguably one of the leading institutes now in Costa Rica at the least. I think that leadership style is is why, because the whole team approaches things from a spirit of service and a posture of learning. Now service for me is how I ended up getting out the basement because I realized that I couldn't act for me anymore. I had to be in service to someone else. That's what you have to do in your 12 step recovery program. That's what I started to do with even the podcast. When I started that podcast, it was in service to the message that my guests had. Um, so I just decided to bake it into kind of our core philosophy around Imaloa's leadership to lead from a spirit of service and a posture of learning.
2: I love uh, that. Yeah, I do too. Thank um, you. you. You mentioned a higher power. Yeah. And, and I read about, you said something about the six stages of shattering ego and finding God. Can you talk on that?
3: the god word people don't like the god word i i never got it to me god is just as charged of a word as love or universe for me and so i've recently drafted this book it'll be my second book and it's the six stages of shattering ego and finding god and that is essentially what we've discussed today going from working hard being successful fail working hard being successful fail then ending up in a basement you know and becoming powerless over life and that life is unmanageable it's step one of a 12-step program recognizing that i admit my powerlessness not because i'm powerless but so that i may be empowered by higher power creator god universe whatever show me what you want me to be now this might sound woo woo but you know we're building a big business and it's connected to um our, our individual private relationships with source, higher power, prayer, meditation, spirituality, religion. It's a very Catholic country here in Costa Rica. So um, empowered to, you know, I admit my powerlessness so that I can get myself out the way. Stage five is I'm powerful and one with God. But there's still a distinction there between you and God, and then stage six, as I explore in the book, is that I am God. Now, this will probably piss some people off. I'm not suggesting that I'm God, and I'm not some crazy spiritual teacher. However, I think there is value in recognizing that we are powerful co-creators um call that a god or co-creator but and i think so much of my life i handed over that personal power and personal responsibility so that i didn't have to shine too bright or fail too big and so that's what the book will explore is how to have that fine line and be present with what is and who it is you are and what you offer to the world
1: that's a great concept which i fully embrace i really love that
3: thank you kathy
1: and um You have also said that if you believe that you believe if we listen to our greatest pain in life, it can be transformed into purpose. So what do we have to do to achieve that? What do you advice do you give?
3: Well, life, I don't give advice, but I'll tell you for me, (laughs) life is always speaking to us. Mm -hmm. We may have resistance on what it's saying, but our lives are all, I believe, are always speaking to us and oftentimes these things insights ideas what to do next they come in as a whisper and if we don't listen maybe it continues on as a shout and eventually down the line it's a catastrophe but it started as a whisper i really believe that so for me what i practice doing now and have since the days of grandma's basement which were just seven years ago by the way so it's not so far <laughs> in, in behind wow. um i gotta remind myself of that too. do a mental check is part of creating a maloa one could say it's part of my purpose on earth it certainly feels like it to create a safe space for people to transform their lives that feels uh-huh. very resonant with me that was that that was from my greatest pain in my life uh-huh. and in order to bridge that gap i had to stop doing what i thought was right in my professional, even personal, but professional life, and just listen to the whisper. I had to listen to the whisper of what life was causing me to become. It wasn't to continue being a talk show host or you know, in New York or LA doing the TV thing. I had to listen deeper and I had to be even more still. And this slowly made itself known. And how do I know that it was meant to be? Because it happened. That's the funny thing about life is how do I know I'm in the right place? Because I'm here. Here I am.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And so there's, a, there's, also an, there's also a surrender there that I think is important when people are creating yeah. what it is they're So wanting.
1: do you feel that's where Imaloa came out of is your surrender and it kind of came to you, the idea for the Institute?
3: Well, without a doubt, but it didn't come to me in some dream. I know some people have dreams or they have fantasies or delusions Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. You know, I had gone from the basement. I was making a little bit of money and I applied for this house that I should never have gotten approved for in Maui. So I literally go from grandma's basement to Oprah's neighbor. Oprah was literally my neighbor in Kula, Hawaii. And so that was like a shock seeing Oprah and Gail that first day on their little doom buggy thing. I was like, what just happened? I was in grandma's basement in like, Maine. And being at that house, I had an Airbnb in the backyard that paid for the whole thing, right? This was back in 2015. So grateful, so (laughs) grateful. So I had all these free rooms, meaning I had like four bedrooms upstairs. So I just started inviting people to Maui. You know, I didn't charge anybody. I just provided a nice place to stay. It was lovely to have people around. I started, you know, I was looking after myself. And what I recognized, Kathy, is people, human beings, want to feel at home in their transformation. And that's how I created Imaloa. But it was through taking the action of just moving to Maui, taking the next right action, not really always sure where the path was going to lead, no clue if the Airbnb was going to work. And life just continued showing up and I just continued listening. And that's eventually how it all evolved.
1: You just stayed so open to every possibility. (sighs) Try to most human beings cannot do. It's very
3: hard because at the same time, you also need to focus. So to me, that's the ultimate paradox is how do you stay open to the whisper, but also make decisions, take action, right? Because if you just are open to everything, you're like a hippie on a beach. Bless Uh the hippies on beaches. And if you're trying to, if you're trying to take so much action and control the outcome, then you're like me in New York where I'm just constantly hustling. It's this paradox. And I couldn't tell you how I do it other than the stories and the anecdotes, because I think Uh this is personal for each person, but there's something in that give and take that, um, you know, there's something in it, you know, and, and, and. You know, people who try to teach that, I'm not sure you can teach that. I think that this is lived experience. You got to seek out mentors and get in 12-step programs and get dirty and say hi to grandma in her basement and all of Uh this. You know, it's um, not something that you can teach in a book, but I'm so grateful for podcasts like yours and women like you, where we can have these dialogues so that people Uh who are listening, whatever stage they're at in life, that they, you know whatever's meant to resonate will. And most importantly, that they can know that they're not alone. When I was in that basement, I clung to podcasts before I ever started mine. I was listening, I was doing winter marches because I had nothing else to do. I had nothing to do. I was going to like bird sanctuaries up to my knees in in snow in Maine, listening to podcasts, listening to what the world was doing because I felt like my world was ending. That's the power of podcasts. And that's why I love people that do them. And I love doing my own and and the whole thing, you know,
2: and I love hearing that. Um, And on a different note a bit, um, I've been reading a ton of travel magazines and H1 comes out with a front cover that says the future of travel is in wellness travel.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: Why do you think people are looking to that?
3: So I've not I've been on a, a cruise in my life and I've done some vacations, but not really. I usually travel to see people. So I've never been one to go to a resort, for example, for 10 days or cruises or these, 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 you know, vacations. What I'm seeing at Maloa is as people get back into travel, they are wanting something that is more nourishing to the soul, to themselves, to their families. I mean, we have couples that come to Imaloa for retreats that have nothing to do with couples or therapy, but you can tell, I talked to them, they're looking for answers in their relationship. They might be at a yoga retreat, but they're looking for answers in their relationship. They ain't going to get that running around on the beach and, you know, whatever it is, Playa Carmen, Playa del Carmen, Mexico, or in Jamaica, unless it's at like a wellness... But, you know, when you when you stop the mind, the active mind, when you go into meditation classes, even if you've never meditated and you're in the jungle at Imaloa and you see a sloth as you're doing a yoga pose or in a meditation, your world starts to shift, even if you can't see it, everything is slowing down. Suddenly you can see things clearer. And that's just something that people don't get on regular vacations, which is why we're seeing such an uptick in wellness travel. Good question, mm-hmm. Mary Elkins. I like that.
1: Yeah. You started your podcast, and you've talked a little bit about this already—the yeah. Jake Sasseville Show—when yeah. you were living with your grandmother, and mm. it grew to a hundred thousand listeners in a week, but in a
3: month, in a month,
1: in a month, in a month. Sorry, and but you were in recording in a Dunkin' Donuts parking lot.
3: You ever been to Dunkin' Donuts, ladies?
1: I yes. have. Yes. You know what? Even
3: though you you people are West Coast, you know Dunkin' Donuts, right?
1: Yes, we have nothing more American
3: working class. So, Grandma didn't have internet,
1: and Donuts did.
3: Dunkin' Donuts had internet. So I had to go in her 2004 Jetta to Dunkin' Donuts with a big microphone, bigger than the one that I'm talking to you on. I looked ridiculous. I'd be uploading my shows at that same Dunkin' Donuts parking lot, sometimes at two in the morning because the editor would get me the shows back so late sometimes. And I had to upload it at two because I had a lot of listeners in the UK that would listen on their commute because I attract all this stuff because I'm a little neurotic. It's fine. (laughs) And so I would upload these episodes at two in the morning, I'd have cops show up behind me. Uh, (sniffs) Sir, what are you doing? Oh my God. uh, Well, sir, I'm officer. I'm, I'm uploading my podcast because I have listeners in London. And meanwhile, I'm in the middle of Maine with a big old microphone trying to record these intros and sending it to the editor and, I multiple times I had the Lewiston police department behind me with the lights on wondering what exactly I was doing at two in the morning on a Sunday in the Dunkin Donuts parking lot. But I just kept <laughs> telling them the truth. Grandma didn't have internet and I had to steal it from Dunkin Donuts.
1: <laughs> yeah. Cause you didn't even have to have a password, right?
3: Yeah. I could just, exactly. Exactly. But how do,
1: how do you think hosting your podcast transformed you?
3: You know, I'll be it very honest with you, Kathy. So I did 300 episodes of that show in wow. a very short amount of time. Wow. And I did three episodes a week. So people who were thinking that I was just like phoning it in literally at a Dunkin' Donuts parking lot, I was working, you know, I had to book these things before we had pod match or any like yeah. that. Like it was like, it was a thing. So what I did, I'll tell you what it did for me. Actually, that's a great question. The first 30 or so guests on my podcast Were people that I had really hurt in my life. Now I didn't say that on the podcast, but when I was spiraling down, spiraling, 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 back when Sandy took away my house, Hurricane Sandy took away, you know, washed away my house in New York City. A lot of these people that I happened to have in my Rolodex, the podcast was like a living amends. It was like I don't need to talk about what I did or didn't do or how I showed up or didn't show up. I was insanely curious about them. I provided them a safe place to talk. Sometimes they had never spoken publicly and these were extremely high profile people. This was Beyonce's publicist who was responsible for Prince, Adele, Mariah Carey. This was the owner of major NBA team in Philadelphia. This was one of the only female presidents of a Fortune 500 company. Like these were people that people wanted to listen to that had never done podcasts. But in many ways, that podcast was a living amends. And I never told those people that, but I think they felt it. And as a result, the podcast helped me reestablish relationships with people that I had cared a lot about. And that were a big part of my life in my 20s that because I was just so out of control. And that just
1: really fits with the 12-step program, right? Exactly right. That's exactly what they tell you to do, right? Which I didn't
3: think of that when I was doing it. But now in reflection, when you ask me that question, I think Uh that's really what it was.
2: Uh Yeah. Yeah. Well, how did you grow it to 100,000 listeners so quickly?
3: So what I did was I'm an attention. I was going to say attention whore. I really should not say that on your show, but I pride myself (laughs) on being authentic about how inauthentic I am. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I told you, right, When when I started crying, like hysterically, and that's what was written about. Uh-huh. So I said to myself, people aren't going to write about Jake Sassville having a podcast. I was only slightly famous, as the book says, right? But they would write about it if something interesting is in the podcast. So what I did was I got these high profile people, and people feel really safe talking to me. And I never disobey or dis dis, um, uh, what do you call it when you lose someone's trust? I never did that. Like I was always very straightforward. But because people feel so comfortable talking to me, I get these people who had never done interviews, Beyonce's publicist Zippo for 25 years. And suddenly she's telling me the inside, not the scoop, but like insider stuff, you know? And so I would cut clips and my, me or my, the person I was working with eventually when I started making money with the podcast, we would send it to every major blog and media outlet that was digital. And we would write the headline, we would write the story, and we'd say, there's the clip. And these people would pick this up, whether it was the first openly gay NFL athlete or Garrett Madison, who wife died on Mount Everest when he was trekking Everest for the 50th time. And he died at, she died at base camp while, while an avalanche went down. Crazy stories. And we would find these stories and then send them out. And then we would just drive massive listenership and people would subscribe and eventually it just it just took really quickly.
1: that's how you did it you that's... were your own press agent exactly exactly, yeah. exactly. I was it's a lot of work
3: it's a lot of work
1: that's what we're not very good at yet we will we will, <laughs> we will be we're we're, we're learning our 100th
2: episode now so we...
3: congratulations and you have a whole lot of heart and you do the research and that's what these that's what people care about they care about heart they care about research and make someone feel good and look good and, and yeah get but to you know do them, have to and...
1: dig up the people you got to dig you them
3: gotta up. Dig. you
2: got to let them
1: know that yeah. you're
3: there. Yeah. Yeah. it's great. Jake, what would
2: you have our listeners have as a takeaway today?
3: I think when you start to live life on life's terms and not what you would have it be, there's more joy there. And... At least there is for me. I can't believe I'm in Costa Rica. I thought I would never leave Maui, but Imaloa just had to be in Costa Rica. That's just what was presented to me and not presented. I mean, that's what happened, right? That was that in of itself was living life on life's terms. I was never going to leave Maui. That was my home. My friends are there. My friends are still there. My friends visited me there. It was a magical time in my life and I could have fought it. I could have said i don't want to go i'll do something else but imaloa was bigger than that the vision and so i had to let go i had to surrender and i had to live life on life's terms and discover what was for me down here and i my life i got my life back by coming down here because i got to see the thing about imaloa is that it shows you everybody whether you're an employee or a guest or a participant whatever it is it shows you what you've been unwilling to look at. And I think that has something to do with the nature component, but everyone always says, gosh, I haven't been willing to look at this in my relationship or in my business or in my personal life or in my sexuality or whatever it is. And Imaloa just heightens it. We don't have anybody that's poking you. It's not that type of thing, but it's just being immersed in nature. So for me, that place has really given me my life. And Costa Rica has, being around these happy, joyful people. I mean, I was around happy and joyful people for two years during the pandemic, when everyone else was losing their shit everywhere else in the world. I was around happy and joyful people. (laughs) So living life on life's terms has made life so much more easy in the challenging times and so much more joyful in the fun times. And it sounds like
2: you filled the hole.
3: I think I've recognized finally, Mary, that there is a hole and that all I can do is continue to nurture it for myself. I can continue to nurture the eight-year-old and the 12-year-old and the 14-year-old little Jake. They used to call me Jacob when I was a kid. And I'm learning how to do that here in Costa Rica too. I don't know if I've filled it, but I think I can nurture it. And and and, you know, I think that's I think there's something to be said about that.
2: Oh, that sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank Our you. guest today on Late Boomers has been Jake Sasseville, entrepreneur, entrepreneur, CEO, and founder of Imaloa Institute, TV personality, young magician, author, music producer, and a man who believes in the intersection of culture and consciousness. You can reach Jake at Jake Sasseville on social media and at imaloainstitute.com. Thank you again, Jake.
3: Thank you, ladies.
1: And we want to let you know that for listening today, Jake is generously offering a $350 reduction in the price of attending any of the signature retreats at Imaloa. So go to his website and put in code Jake. And thank you so much, Jake. (laughs)
3: <laughs> it's Christmas, it's Merry Christmas, Mary yeah. Elkins and Kathy Worthington. Thank yeah. you, ladies. It's really a pleasure to connect with you.
1: Thanks. You too. We want to remind our listeners also to follow us on Instagram at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins and at LateBoomers. Please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and write to us with your comments or suggestions on LateBoomers.biz, B-I-Z. Thanks again so much, Jake. Thank
3: you so much
1: thank you for joining us on late boomers the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style power and impact please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz if you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to EWNPodcastNetwork.com. This
2: podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact.
0: Go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? <laughs> I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of E-Women Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy It's a seven-module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand, and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.